Hello and welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This is Charlie and Ken. This week, as promised, we're going to return to Borneo, Malaysian part of Borneo, and chat about some of Ken's highlights from his recent trip there. I'll also be throwing in a few anecdotes of my own. I was actually just looking through Birds of Indonesia with my son a couple of days ago, and we started chatting about what our most wanted birds were. And from the whole of, you know, Sunderland and and, uh, Indonesia, most of the birds that I wanted to see were from Borneo. There seems to be a sort of inordinate number of really spectacular, charismatic birds there. So it's um, it's a very, very cool place. And Ken sent me the list of his of his highlights, his top sightings. And yeah, I was fairly gripped off by a few of them. So yeah, I'll be excited to hear about them. So let's get started. Of course, we're going to do it in uh, regular, naturally adventurous top five reverse order, starting with number five. So your number five is the Bornean ground cuckoo from the Kinabatangan River in Sabah. Yeah, I mean, uh, ground cuckoos are strange things. Uh, you have ground cuckoos in South America, where there's, what, five species? And, and at the moment. <laughs> right. And then you have three Asian ground cuckoos. I don't think they're real closely related, although they're all in the cuckoo family. But I think across those two continents, these are just very difficult to see, very shy, low density. It's just kind of, uh, you know, legendary birds. Yep. So my experience on this trip with Bornean ground cuckoo really did live up to the legend and not really for good reasons in terms of delivering good views oh. to the participants, but it was still a very exciting encounter. So it's it's such a weird bird. It, it uh, you know, it's this big, long-tailed cuckoo, big, broad tail, robust bill, uh, chunky body, kind of greenish and like a mix of blue and green and Got a lot of barring and scaling and this kind of, you know, it's kind of gaudy but cryptic at the same time. But this bird mainly lives in, in sort of riverine forest, kind of wet, muddy, seasonally flooded forest in the, the Sundaland lowland rainforest. And what I find so strange about it is that you just never know if it's going to be singing and territorial on any given tour. It just seems very... Yeah finicky or maybe it's just responding to cues that I don't understand so I on a one pass tour in Borneo I had a, an excellent encounter with this bird where everybody had great views and even got some photos so this wasn't a new bird for me or anything but it's something you always want to try to see on a tour so we we had a few days in this place along the Kinabatongan River and we tried a few known territories of this ground cuckoo the first step to trying to see it is basically you just you're going along in a boat on a little muddy tributary stream lined with forest and you listen for the cuckoo and you play tape a little bit to see if you can get it responding it's funny how we still say tape even though we you know haven't used tapes for well over a decade <laughs> but, like, yeah uh, play recordings i guess digital recordings so uh-huh. we actually right off the bat we had pretty good success in that we heard a cuckoo um, early on the first morning that one ended up being in a place where we couldn't really see it 
it's all about you have to get an individual that's responding strongly and then you have to be in a place where you can kind of maneuver into the forest to actually try to see it because it's just unbelievably shy bird so but later in the morning we had another bird that was super vocal and it's weird so you know it was sort of 10 a.m which in this part of the world is incredibly hot and sweaty and most birds are getting (laughs) quiet but then this weird cuckoo just starts it's got this like deep kind of honking vocalization so we heard this and it was in a good spot where we were able to get onto a tiny little tributary and it kept calling and it was coming closer and so at this point while I had people prepared I I told people bring boots and whatever you need to basically go bushwhacking (laughs) because that's probably our only chance of seeing this ground cuckoo occasionally it will respond so strongly it'll just come like right up to the edge of a of the water but that's not the norm so after a while we we stormed the beaches i got off the boat we kind of slopped (laughs) through the mud and we went into this dense jungle and this is just a very exciting kind of birding you know you've got this big good looking rare enigmatic bird and it's just singing away and you know you're you're kind of creeping closer and closer to it and then you freeze as a guide there's a lot of trying to kind of find paths where people can walk without making too much noise and explain to people what we're doing. Okay, we're going to move up to there. You need to stay really quiet. I mean, it's hard. It's hard, right, for to move through the jungle without a path, without making a lot of noise. So there's just a lot of simultaneous tensions where you're trying to, to give your group a chance to see a bird like this. And, uh, you know, you're trying to get close enough to the bird that you might see it. But every time you move closer, you end up making a lot of noise, and there's a risk of just scaring it away definitively. So there's, I mean, it's a lot of adrenaline. You, you know, you, you've had these kind of encounters, right? It's like, and it's always very hard to know exactly what you should do. So there's just a lot of field craft and intuition in terms of your strategy and trying to see a bird like this. Well, we basically, we got quite close to the, the the singing bird and I got everybody in position in a place where there were pretty decent views and we played the call and not one but two birds actually came in and responded really strongly and this bird basically shot through a little gap I'd actually pointed out this gap and I told people watch that gap it shot through there <laughs> and then it kind of like jumped onto a little pile of wood and jumped down and ran back I think this happens a lot in this part of the world and this is something that like birders in South America probably wouldn't even understand, or, or North America, you know, the whole Western Hemisphere. In this part of the world, when birds see you, they usually fly away. Like, so many birds, as soon as they're aware there's a human, they're, they're just, especially these shire ground-dwelling birds, they're just gone. You know, you are a threat. You're probably trying to hunt them. And that's exactly what happened. These birds popped in very close, but very brief, and then went way back, and, that, and they actually kept vocalizing and singing and we spent about another hour bushwhacking around and I saw the bird once I kind of went around a corner and I I just glimpsed it sitting in a thicket but as soon as it saw me it just kind of parachuted down to the ground and that was the only additional sighting after another hour of of just sweating and trumping around (laughs) so I had five people in my group three of them saw the ground cuckoo 
So by the standards of Ground Cuckoo, that's, that's pretty successful, right? Not bad. But, yeah. you know, it wasn't like a lingering view or anything. It was very, very brief. Um, so it was a little bit frustrating, but at the same time, it was just so exciting to be in the presence of this enigmatic bird and, and just all the strategic concerns. And, and then the weird, the end of the story is that, well, this was on our first morning, and we had, uh, you know, three days in this area. And I was really thinking, well, this bird is so responsive and territorial. It's in a good place where we have a chance to see it. We'll just, you know, keep going back there and eventually we'll get really good views. Nope. The bird maintained its enigma. <laughs> we went back three or four times and we just never heard a peep. There were there were two territorial really? ground cuckoos there. We never heard a peep again. Played vocalizations and sat there and nothing. Not a peep. We, you know, went back at Different times of the day, same time of day, nothing. So that's I think that's a big reason why this bird is just such a a difficult one. I, I think yeah, ground cuckoos like you were saying, they're just they're just phantoms. You know, they're just amazing C- considering their size. It's just amazing how they can evade even being glimpsed. You know, they're really they're the size of a pheasant basically. It. They're they're like a smaller yeah. pheasant. They're enormous birds. It's like a ghost. It's like a ghost in the forest. Yep. Can I tell you my frustration with this species? Unburden yourself. <laughs> so on the the tour, so I, I've been to Borneo twice. I went did some birding on my own once, and then I I, I I led a tour. It was it was more like a photography. It was birding with a camera. So you know you're supposed to be still you know birding, not just photography. But the people that I was guiding, all very lovely people, they were more kind of on the sort of photography side of things they they were wanted sort of little setups and just stand around and you know get easy photos of very good looking birds so they were wanting to see kingfishers they were like oh show us some kingfishers and stalk bill kingfishers and um and we're going along and the guy takes us to this spot and we play the tape and the thing responds and I, and I, and I was getting all excited okay yeah this is a really rare bird really special bird and they were like yeah but it's kind of it's just kind of like brown. It's not like bright colors or anything. I said, yeah, but it's like a, it's a Bornean endemic. And it's just, you know, really difficult to see. And it's calling right here. And they were like, you know, we're not really interested. We, we prefer to go and see some kingfishers. So they were only prepared to spend about five minutes playing this thing. And it didn't come out straight away. So that was it. They were like, nah, let, let's go. And for me, who had never seen this bird, this was incredibly frustrating I really wanted to try hard and give it a good go, you know, but uh, we didn't even give it 10 minutes of, of, uh, of tape. So that was, um, it was a bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit bit gut-wrenching um, for me. I mean, it, it just makes me all, all the more want to try it harder next time. And hopefully I'll have some people, I've actually got some clients who are pretty hardcore and they uh, they want to go in the next year or two with me. So hopefully we'll be able to give that a good go. You know the the Birds of Borneo book? There's a few. The Phillips one, I think. Um, uh-huh. But it gets a full page. You know, most, most birds you'll get, you know, half a dozen birds, six, seven birds on a page. This bird gets a full page. And it's illustrated together with some bearded pigs, you know, endemic mammal to Borneo. There's this beautiful painting where there's like three of them all kind of feeding in amongst these pigs. And it's kind of interesting because in South America as well, the... The ground cuckoos, they they're supposed to follow like troops of peccaries, so uh, that's quite a an interesting thing. 
you know, as well as being seen at ant swarms and stuff like that. But um, they're so little known. I think a lot of it is just based on a few people, you know, base their knowledge of the species just on a few kind of anecdotes or whatever. So there was also a comment in the text that the original kind of explorers knew this bird because they would set snares and occasionally they would catch a ground cuckoo in a snare and they would try and eat it. And apparently it tastes dreadful. It's like really kind of noxious tasting. And apparently I think they feed on like millipedes and and beetles and stuff like that. And it really kind of affects the, the taste of them, which is uh, kind of interesting. But yeah, weird birds and yeah, just phantoms. Eh? Yep. So this was very much on my uh, top 10 <laughs> birds in Asia to see. Um, this one and also there's another one in, in Sumatra. I have seen, so there's three in Asia. And uh, the only one I've seen is the coral-billed ground cuckoo, which occurs in Thailand. But even that, you know, you think of how many times I've been to where it occurs and how many times I've actually seen it. I maybe seen it three times out of, you know, 30 visits, you know. So you're sort of on a you know, chance in 10 or something like that. Okay, so moving on to your number four, which, again, is from the, the Kinabatangan area. Uh, this is actually now the, the largest woodpecker in the world, the largest extent woodpecker in the world, the great slady woodpecker. Yeah, this is a bird that I've seen quite a few times. You know, it's got a huge range in Asia. It's all the way from northern India into Southeast Asia. I think it's all the way to the Philippines and down through Sundaland. So it's actually got mm -hmm. a unusually large range. But it's always, it's a very low density bird, as I guess you would expect of such a huge woodpecker. And generally very shy, you know, would you agree based on your experience? Yeah, they, they keep their distance. Uh -huh. yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, a lot of these woodpeckers in North America where they're kind of tapping on suet out somebody's back window. <laughs> you know, this is a, a like a huge woodpecker of, of mostly of quite pristine forest. And they're social. Eh? They're usually in little groups. Social, yeah. But Oops, they, which is unusual for woodpeckers. It's unusual in so many ways. It's just it's got weird coloration. Mm. It's mostly gray with some bare yellow skin on the face, kind of short-tailed, uh, big feet. It's just it's an odd bird in so many ways. But they they just keep their distance. They you know they they don't give themselves up easily. So I've seen it quite a few times, but never particularly well. Um, never got any kind of decent photo of the species. So, again, as you said, it's Kinabatongan, so we're on a little boat with an electric motor slowly trolling down a little forested estuary of the Kinabatongan River. And we heard some, some great slaty woodpeckers off in the distance. It's got this distinctive kind of three-part barking call, like, wee-hee-hee, wee-hee-hee. Yep. And, uh, you know, this has happened to me hundreds of times in forests all over Asia. And usually what happens is you play the call and nothing happens. That's the default uh, result. <laughs> and occasionally birds will respond and sort of shoot by and maybe pop into a tree for a few seconds and then disappear again. Would you agree that's a, a pretty typical uh, scenario with the I, great slady? I don't know. I've, I've had a little more success, I think. I've, of, I've had them often coming fairly close and multiple birds all just going nuts in a tree and and they kind of shake their wings you know you get three four birds land in a tree 
all at different levels and just giving these very unusual calls and shaking their wings. So I've I've been a little luckier with this. Okay. Well, thanks for telling my story. Um, yep, that's pretty much what happened. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe I just have had bad luck with the species. You get that. Yeah, like yeah. some people uh-huh. just see yeah. certain things over and over again and other, you know, other people have the nemesis birds like you had that dusky yeah. broadbill, which I've probably seen 20 times. Uh, it's, yeah. it's funny. So, <laughs> but yeah, the, it was, it was as, as you described, you know, I, I played the call. The, the birds were pretty distant. I played the call and they just came shooting in. It was three birds little family group I guess and it was one of these things where I, I told people look at that big dead snag across the river and watch yeah. that I think they're probably going to fly in there and then they did, did exactly what I said Good. they flew in oh and I love that and I love that and they did they did the full display which as you say it's so weird it's they they kind of uh, open their wings and the wings are enormous eh? it's a huge woodpecker and they have huge mm. broad wings yep. and they kind of flash the wings and the head and bill go towards vertical and they call it, it reminds me a little bit of the wood hoopoos in africa that are these these cooperative social breeders yeah. and that do this kind of group display but yeah i had never seen this before and certainly not at close range and it, it was i was just flabbergasted it was just awesome that they were quite close <laughs> and they were in beautiful light on the snag that was right next to us this dead tree and they and they almost wouldn't leave. They were just sat there for ten minutes and displaying, and uh, you know it was a fantastic photo opportunity. Got some video, saw them in flight a few times, and and it was just awesome experience of the world's largest woodpecker. They're very cool. Yeah, it's a very cool, unusual bird. Yeah, very neat. Before we move on from this site, this Kinabatangan site, I just wanted to mention one more thing. So you're often doing birding from a boat but you can also go out at night and um, we had a couple of these night boat rides along these tributaries and they were just absolutely fantastic i really really enjoyed them some of the kingfishers that had been like really tough during the day to get good views of they're like just sat above the water like close you can get really nice photos there was uh, these huge owls, these big buffy fish owls getting really close in multiple views of them, get some mammals. That was a really cool experience as well Was doing these night boat rides. So we're going to move on to another site in Borneo and another great bird. So this is now your number three, which is the black-crowned pitta from the Danum Valley. Yeah, the pittas are just maybe the most sought-after birds in Asia for, for traveling birders. There's not too many pittas, eh? There have been a few splits that have greatly expanded the number of pittas, but historically there's been, it's a relatively small set of birds, and most of them are quite different from each other. And it's the kind of thing, you know, they're often described as jewel-like. You, when you look through a book of the region, you see these things, and you just want to see them all. They're, they're kind of addictive, you know. <laughs> pittas... There's yep. something about pittas that they just they they send a lot of people to Asia to go birding. That's for sure. They do not give themselves away easily, but when you see them, they're just gorgeous. Have you heard of the jewel hunter? I have. Yeah. So a guy actually went. This was before the big split that they did, but he actually spent a year traveling around the world to try and find every single pitta, and he did it. I've actually met this guy. He's called Chris Goody, a British guy. But um, and and a, 
I haven't read his book, but I've heard it's actually quite good, a lot better than some other books that birders have have written. <laughs> but just imagine, yeah, going to see them all in a year would be pretty. Uh, it would be pretty epic. It'd be intense. Uh, the, the, yeah, as I say, they don't give themselves away easily, and and some of them are on some very remote islands, and they just in general, they're they're one of these birds of more pristine places you know they just that you know you don't tend to see pittas in gardens and uh there's there's exceptions i guess the the more yeah. migratory ones are often in in gardens and scrub but the, the, the yeah right the resident ones boy they're they're really almost like indicator species for pretty pristine primeval forest so on a tour people really want to see pittas naturally and so trying to get views of pittas is, <laughs> is a huge priority and it is not easy, eh? Um, it, in, yeah. On this tour, there are no feeding stations or mealworms or blinds or any of these things. That, you know, most of the photos that you see of pittas coming from Asia are, are from some kind of feeding setup now. There's more and more of these. They don't give themselves away as easily as the, the neotropical ant pittas, which are kind of hopping around at your feet, you know, eating mealworms. Like, even the, the pittas that are fed... You, you have to sit sometimes for hours in a hide motionless and hope one kind of pops in for you know a few seconds that's how it, a typical setup even for an easy pitta so with as shy and sort of low density as these things are they're really tough to see like in situ just in the forest and, and then imagine you're with a group of five six seven eight uh, participants no fault of theirs that just makes it even harder right because these birds are so shy that you're making a fair bit of noise and so it just it it's hard to produce good views of of pittas on on a tour the bigger the group the more difficult as well yeah and it's almost like exponentially you know there with one or two you've got a decent chance but when you're talking seven or eight it's just really it's almost it's a big ask yep yep so on this trip, uh, actually, one participant and I had already done a Sarawak, which was like a pre-trip, and we'd seen a, a couple pittas there really well. But on the main tour, we, of course, were still looking for pittas. We actually had amazing luck with a, a Bornean banded pitta, which is this gorgeous kind of lemon yellow, heavily barred pitta. It flew like right over the heads of the group. I've never had this before. We were sort of calling it from one side of a path, and then it just flew over our heads. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it was a very brief view, but it was, uh, it was pretty exciting. But we, after a couple days in Danum Valley, which is kind of the core forest site on this trip, we still hadn't seen the black-crowned pitta, which is the most common pitta. It's still not particularly common, but you hear them pretty frequently. And, and they tend to be not that difficult by the standards of pittas to see. You know, often responsive, and they often perch up like a little bit higher, making them easier to see. And we had a great time. We had lots of luck with lots of things, but we just weren't finding this pitta. And, you know, as a guide, you become a little bit uh, obsessed or single-minded about finding a bird like that. (laughs) You know, it's the kind of thing you you really want to show people. And... uh, we just tried again and again. A couple people had glimpses of one that shot across a path, but most people hadn't had a proper view. And so it came down to the last morning in Danum. We were, you know, this is the fourth day of birding there. And I was determined to, to find this pitta. 
basically what you do is you're walking along a forest road or a forest trail and you occasionally play the call and when one responds you investigate to see whether it's going to come closer and or whether you can get closer to that bird and get into a position where you might see it so we did just that there the bird was responding you know there's a lot of maneuvering there was a few little trails but trying to figure out well does this trail go to the right place that'll bring us close to the bird you also have to think about the topography right because oftentimes pittas yep. don't want to go straight up a slope but if you can kind of get down in the valley where they are they'll come up the valley so there was this whole you know strategic uh, positioning and we went down and i was thinking of trying to pull this bird up the valley but then it was a bit too far and then i sort of took people back up the trail and then we bushwhacked off the trail because I saw there was a nice little open area and and all this basically culminated in I, I situated the group in the middle of a sort of clearing where there was decent views down deep into the understory and I just told people as I often do please get comfortable find a place where you don't have to move at all and and stay quiet and uh you know, even if somebody else sees the bird, don't move, don't, you know, jump up and, or don't, don't sort of loudly say, I don't see it. You know, the, the best chance for everybody to see this bird is if we just all stay very still and very quiet. And then usually, like, if, if you're not seeing it, the bird will move a bit, and then you can get on it, that sort of thing. So that was pretty much exactly what happened. The bird hopped in on the ground. One person saw it. I, I didn't even spot it. You know, somebody saw it. And was like, yeah, I saw it. I saw it. It jumped through a little gap. And, you know, I just kept everybody quiet and kept, I actually, at this point, I stopped playing the the recording and I just whistled it because it's pretty easy to imitate. And you can kind of put a little nuance into whistles where you just precisely yeah. imitate what the bird is doing and, and the volume and everything. You know, it's, it's uh, more nuanced than when you're just playing a recording. And uh, I just kept whistling it and, it sort of circled all the way around us as they often do. They, they tend to maintain a, a radius, you know, of like 15 meters while circling all the way around you. And so slowly different people glimpsed it. You know, I saw it, I saw it there and kept everybody quiet. And then I saw, okay, the bird is coming this way. And there's basically like behind us, there's this big log and this open strip. And so I, I told everybody, okay, turn around, like turn around and we're going to keep I'm going to keep whistling it, and then I think it's going to cross this log. And sure enough, it, it you know hopped across that open area. It hopped up onto the log just in perfect, gorgeous view, like 10, <sighs> 10 meters away. It's just this stunningly beautiful kind of uh, oh, deep red plum burgundy bird with a black crown and little like bluish highlights. It's just a, just a gorgeous bird. Endemic uh, only to Saba, by, uh, by the way, you know, sort mm-hmm. of North Borneo. But it was one of these sightings where, again, the bird kind of retained its mystique because it didn't just sit there on the log. It was on the log for like five seconds and then it disappeared, you know, not to be seen again. Nobody got a photo of it, but it was just just a perfect sighting. Everybody had it beautifully and it was it was great to finally finally see that bird after days and days of trying <laughs> so as a guide very satisfying and and you know it's just one of these one of these magical encounters i find with those kind of red-bellied pitters 
they tend to sit a bit more than other pitters. I don't find often I I find that sort of moving closer to them is better than trying to call them to you. I think other some other ones they move around a bit more, but I always find the red-bellied ones they they like to just kind of sit and call, and you've got to kind of creep closer. Yeah, I I would agree in general. Although that's part of why I think I struggled to find this bird on this tour is because my normal search profile didn't seem to apply this year for some reason. the The birds were staying right. on the ground more, and they were far more wary. Ah. Oftentimes, the way I find this yeah. bird is that I I get it vocalizing, and then the birds will go up even into like the sub canopy, and then as you say, you yep. go in. And then you find it. Often what I do is I have the, the participants wait somewhere. I'll go in, I'll spot it, and then I'll kind of quietly move them in to where they can get a view. You know, that sort of thing. But right. it just it wasn't working yeah. that way on this trip for some reason. I, I had mm-hmm. one bird really close uh, singing. And I was thinking it was in the canopy. And I moved towards it. And it basically turned out to be on the ground. And as I moved towards... <laughs> what I thought was a bird up in the canopy, I scared the bird that was on the ground. So it was, that, you know, a bit frustrating. Right. So I had this group in Danham, and they were absolutely terrified of leeches. And Danham can be quite a leechy place. I think I've mentioned oh, yeah. before that uh, they they even print out a a certificate for those that want it that says, uh, "Thank you for being a Danham blood donor, Danham Valley <laughs> blood donor." Um, which which my clients were just incredibly happy with. Um, but they, they just almost didn't want to go inside the forest. And a lot of the coolest birds are actually inside. They wanted to stay outside and photograph some easy sunbirds and stuff. So, But I, they did want to see pitters. And I said, look, if you want to see pitters, we have to go in. So I kind of dragged them in. And um, we, we managed to get glimpses of one, the, the blue-headed, which is another very attractive bird we got sort of um few people got views of that but this this other bird we only heard in the distance and it was well off trail and they weren't willing to sort of go in so uh, we we sort of got back to the lodge and i had we had maybe an hour before lunch just to relax so i i went back in on my own and i thought if i want to see this bird because I, had, I hadn't seen it up until this point that i've got a bushwhack i've got to go in and i went well off trail you know, I was, and it was quite steep. The terrain was tricky, and these spiky vines and stuff, and going up and down these little valleys, and just getting closer and closer. And it was calling from the same place, and it just calling and calling and calling. And so I just kept walking closer and closer. And in the end, it was calling. It, it felt like it was almost calling straight up. And I just looked up, and it was there on this vine, maybe twenty feet up in the air, almost straight above me. And it didn't even seem to care that much that you know I was I was there, so I managed, I kind of crept closer and got some really nice photos. But yeah, it was it, it seemed to on that occasion at least to be a bird that uh, you had to go to it rather than call it in. Yeah, that blue-headed is. You can make a strong case that that is the world's best-looking pitta. They're a little bit like the Malagasy ground rollers. Now that's a really <laughs> small family. There's only five, but I often yeah. tell people this is one of the five best looking or coolest ground rollers because there's only five so there there are a lot of amazing pittas but wow that blue headed which is endemic to borneo is just a ridiculously gorgeous bird you know it's it has just the right amount of color and just the right places and you know it's not overdone but it's just it's not gaudy right (laughs) when you see that bird just 
like on a vine in the rainforest, maybe lit by a tiny little patch of sun. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like some kind of vision right. of, you know, it's like the heavens opened and you just, you, you just can't believe this creature really exists and that you're really seeing it. You know, sometimes you're haunted by the voice of these birds for days, like we were with that black ground pitta. When you, when you finally see it, it is just like some kind of vision. It, it, and, you know, it's just, it's just unforgettable as, you know, you yeah. work you work hard for these things, but it, it just, in a way, the the very elusiveness of these birds makes a sighting just so so wonderful. So we're going to move on to another site, really fantastic birding site, one of my favorite places in the world to bird, I think, and that's uh, Mount Kinabalu, Kinabalu National Park, and your number two bird, which is Whitehead's Broadbill. Yeah, there's. We've, I think we've talked at some point on this podcast a little bit about the Whitehead's trio. But there are these three endemic Bornean <laughs> montane birds that you can see theoretically on Mount Kinabalu, which is the Whitehead's spider hunter, Whitehead's broadbill, and Whitehead's trogon. You know, they're called the Whitehead's trio. And they're just these legendary birds because they're all incredibly cool birds. But they're all three capable of being unbelievably difficult to see. And it's it's one of these little groupings of birds where you can make a case that any of the three is the most difficult one. And like I've had pretty extensive arguments with other guides about this. And, and I think what it boils down to is that you just never know on any given tour. You just you know you're gonna struggle to see at least one or two of them. You know, you might luck into one. So they, they have this with this weird cachet. But in my experience, the broadbill is the toughest of the three. It's this ridiculously gorgeous, deep green, like deep emerald green broadbill. It's quite big, eh? It's quite a big, chunky, yeah. hefty, big-headed bird. It's almost glowing, the color, isn't it? Exactly. It, exactly. Like illuminated from within. It, I mean, it's it's one of these things, you're seeing it within the forest where everything is quite vividly green, but this thing is just like ridiculously oversaturated, <laughs> sort of uh, yeah. almost iridescent green, and it's just like you didn't think you could be that greened out, but it's just taking green to the next level. It's <laughs> it, It's quite a bird, and it's a really difficult bird. It's not very vocal. It, they just spend a lot of time sitting motionless in the mid-story. I think they're also quite taped out in Kinabalu National Park. There's a lot of birders there. A lot of photographers play a lot of tape. You know, you and I are part of this problem. It's not like I'm saying other people are doing something we don't. <laughs> but uh, you get this in, yeah. in places where a lot of people bird. We actually, our first morning at Kinabalu, when it was still a little bit dark, it was like a little bit pre-dawn, I, w- I got out of the, the van to open a gate, and I heard this broadbill. And, and so... I just ran back, opened the door. I just shouted, everybody out, everybody out. We go running up a hill <laughs> and we, we we get on. There was actually three broadbills. There was like a little flock of these guys. It was just, that was an incredibly exciting start to our birding at Kinabalu. And it was such a great relief to, to, to see this one, which has been my, almost a nemesis. But it wasn't the greatest of views, you know, because it was sort of dim, misty, early morning light. We didn't have a, a sniff of a broadbill then for the, ne- the next two days. The third day, we're walking along the main road, and there's a photographer just sitting by the road. 
thankfully, my my friend, then the local guide I was working with, Hazwan, he felt comfortable enough asking this guy, "What are you looking at?" I wasn't quite, you know, photographers are often quite uh, quite anti-birder, and it's kind of understandable because you know, you eight people kind of crowding around, right? <clears throat> but he was. Yeah. He was kind enough to tell us that he was basically sitting there waiting at a broadbill nest for the broadbills to come back. <laughs> and, wow. and so sure enough, you kind of look carefully in the mid-story, and there's this big pendulous like ball of moss and leaves, which is the nest. And you can actually see the, the juveniles, which already have ridiculously emerald green little crown feathers <laughs> like poking their heads out. And then we look around a bit more, and sure enough, there's the male just sitting uh, well back in the in the mid story, so so we get fantastic views of this male in the scope. So, you know, this wow. was this was great. This was just uh, just wonderful. Well, what the photographer was waiting for was for the the male to come in and feed the chicks. The nest was unbelievably close to the the road. Eh? It was like ten feet, like three meters off the guardrail of the road. So you knew if that bird came in you were going to just get a ridiculously good photo. We had great views and, and we had a few other targets to look for. So we had to move on. We couldn't wait for the bird to come in. And, and I also didn't think it was going to come in with sort of 10 people standing around. You know, they're, they're pretty shy. So, But we had one guy on the tour who was a very keen photographer. And I, I took him aside and I said, look, if I was you, I would stay here and try to get a photo of this this bird. Because I, th- I think it will come in. And I think if it's just a couple people, I think it'll come in. And, and so he, he did it. And, and so we went on birding and sort of came back an hour later. And sure enough, the, the male had come into the nest. And he had these photos that were just whew, gripping <laughs> and, and just gorgeous photos. You know, the, the, the chicks with their big broad bills open wide, kind of vivid yellow inside and then the just glowing emerald green of the of the male so uh, you know I was, I was very happy for him i was i was glad i'd recommended he do that and he was he was delighted at this point it had been a very long day it was sort of we'd been out for 10 hours and it was starting to rain so we called it a day we we headed back to the hotel although i was quite sick at this point that's another story but i i I had a, a horrible kind of uh, little virus or something on this trip, but I, I was I was still sick and I was tired and it was raining, but I was thinking, I got to go back to that nest. I, I, I especially after seeing the the photos of the the guy who'd gotten pictures on the nest, I was just thinking, just yeah. any Ooh. chance that I can Photo. I can see this and get photos like that, like this yeah. is like a maybe not quite once a in a lifetime, envy. but. But maybe, you know, yeah. when you think about how infrequently we make it to Borneo, the, the chances that there's going to be a yeah. nest that are like 10 feet away from the road, like, I got to go back. So sort of a, almost an hour round trip to like go down to the hotel and then go back up to into the park, but eventually got back, back to the nest, <clears throat> staked it out, found a good position. It, by this point, it's quite late in the afternoon and, you know, it's quite, it's, it's dark, it's kind of misty. It's uh, sprinkling rain on and off. And I'm thinking, I, I don't know if this bird is going to come in. It's just, it's late now and nothing's very active. And I figure, well, I'll give it give it an hour, which is about all the time I had before I had to 
to head back to the hotel to do for dinner and to do the bird checklist and all that. And well, sure enough, the bird came in after like 45 minutes, the male came in and he fed the chicks and it, it was just, just amazing. Just, just gobsmackingly <laughs> awesome kind of sighting. Um, you know, even aside, uh, of course I got some great pictures, but just to see that just right in your face, it just, just magic. Uh, I was so glad I went back, even though I was, I was quite tired. You know, you mentioned that, in your opinion, this was the more difficult of the three whiteheads to see. This is actually the only one that I've seen. Ooh. Um, I've never seen or even heard the the spider hunter, and I've heard the trogon, but uh, not seen it. Again, I was with a group that wasn't very keen to walk trails, and um, I was hearing this bird like way up, and it required a bit of climbing, and, and yeah, people were not really... Uh, willing to do it but we we were mainly birding along the road and again you know just playing the tape now and again to see if um, the bird would respond but a lot of people say the best way to see it because it does follow mixed flocks as well right yep so it was just to just to find a flock and just uh, check every bird so yeah we found this nice big flock just right in the middle of the range of this species and we're checking checking and suddenly i see this bird fly in and I get my bins on it and, you know, my heart skips a beat. It's like this stunning emerald glowing little speckled bird, just absolutely amazing. And I was almost stumbling over my words, trying to get people on it and describing where it was. And then it just suddenly just flies and just disappeared. And I was the only person to get on it. I got amazing views, but I just couldn't Ouch. get This is one of the big targets that everybody wanted to see. So that was, it was one of these times where I, I was sort of inwardly very happy, but, you know, sad for the clients. And I had to kind of keep this very uh, sad demeanor <laughs> to sympathize with them. But inside, I was just uh, ecstatic. <laughs> anyway, it's fantastic bird, fantastic place to bird, um, bird Kinabalu. So, um, yeah, very keen to get back there and, and nail those last two uh, whiteheads. Moving on to your last citing your number one which i believe was in sarawak and i think this is probably my most wanted bird in the world a bird i still haven't seen which i think you've seen several times now but uh yeah epic bird totally unique that's the rail babbler in sarawak yeah i don't remember exactly where it was when we did our sort of lifetime top 10 birds but i know it was in there you have to look back at the, <laughs> those episodes to check but this is one of my favorite birds in the world. I'm not just saying that to grip you off. It, it's just it, a wonderful, amazing, unique, beautiful bird. A lot of these birds that have hyphens, you know, rail hyphen babbler, are just odd things where I guess when European scientists saw them for the first time, they just had no idea what box to put them in. And as it turns out, this one, there was no box. There's just a rail babbler box. <laughs> this bird makes up its own family. It's it's a monotypic family. And, you know, rail babbler does tell you quite a bit about it. It's, it's kind of like a rail. It's something that's walking around on the forest floor. But it has a certain slimness. And the tail is fairly long. And the head is quite round. <clears throat> the bill is a bit long. So there is definitely a bit of a babbler aspect to it although it's much bigger than than babblers 
So, but ultimately it's just its own thing. It's, and like so many of these birds that we've talked about today, incredibly shy and scarce. And it's also temperamental, a bit like the ground cuckoo. Sometimes these birds will sing a lot and respond to calls. And sometimes you just hear nothing from them for days at a time. I don't know what, whether it's weather or, or, or amount of rain recently or what cues they're responding to, but it's all of this means this is a very hard bird to see anywhere, anytime, you know, never guaranteed. So we started the, the trip. I had just spent almost a month in Malaysia, but the first thing we did it was myself and one participant, we did this Sarawak pre-trip. Um, Sarawak is pretty rough and rugged, as we mentioned in the last episode. And, and one of the big targets for this extension or this pre-trip was this rail babbler. It's actually pretty common in Sarawak by, by voice. You know, we heard several. Uh, actually, on our first day up in this area called Baklalan, I saw one pretty well, and uh, the guy I was guiding glimpsed one. But again, uh, after that, we, we heard a few, but didn't even come close to seeing one again. But towards the end of our time up there, late afternoon, already starting to get a bit dark, I think I'd played the call as you do. You just kind of randomly troll here and there, and one started responding pretty close. Now, one of the things about birding in this area, uh, this Baklalan area, is that they're not really trails. You're birding along a road. So that means if you're trying to see one of these real understory skulking birds, you have to kind of find your way you know, either bushwhack in or find an open area to look off the edge of the road. It adds a bit of difficulty. So we heard this bird relatively close and we're kind of poking around. Um, for this part, I was working with this excellent local guide called Yeo, who's he's really like the, the bird man of Sarawak. And so he, Yeo and I are poking around. We're looking for, you know, where can we have a, a chance of seeing this bird? Basically, it's kind of a dense thicket and well, eventually I found a little spot where you could kind of climb under, like literally crawl in, and then you had a pretty good view down into the forest understory. So I, I found this spot and I thought, this is this is the place. So so we worked as a team, like the, uh, the participant and I, we got in position there, and then Yale kind of went to the other side of where the bird was and, and to try to pull it through that, that open area. And this worked like a charm. Um, oh, one one other detail I should say is that we're we're basically sitting on top of a little slope, and there's a a big mossy log. There's actually two mossy logs. There's one kind of going up to our right, and then there's another big long one going down to our left. Now, when I picked this spot to try for this bird. I never dreamed that the bird would actually come onto either of these logs because they were just too close to us. You know, I was, I was hoping the bird might walk below us, like way below, and you know, we'd sort of glimpse it as it passed through the forest understory. So we're sitting there. There's a lot of adrenaline, right? You're the birds in Sarawak are even shyer than like what we've described for elsewhere in Malaysia. There, there's a ton of hunting, and so birds here are incredibly shy. So. We've already tried and failed to see this bird before. We know it's incredibly shy. We know it's close. So you actually find yourself holding your breath for a sighting like this. You know, you're you're sitting there and you forget to breathe. 
and you are just absolutely focused on the dim forest understory. It's it's already so dark that it's hard to pick things out. You know, you're you're almost hallucinating movement. You're imagining, oh, there's there's movement, and this bird is so fast and so shy that it, often when you see it, it's like that, right? It's like a flicker in the understory, and you think that was nothing, and then oh, that was the bird. You know, it's that sort of bird. So so we're sitting there, adrenaline, breathless, peering into the understory. And Yale is trying to kind of pull it across. And all of a sudden, I realize the rail babbler is directly below us, and it's actually started climbing up the log that is down to our left. I just couldn't believe it. And so as quietly as I possibly could, I pointed the bird out, and we got a good view, but then we just, as you do, you stay quiet and don't move. And the bird then proceeded to walk just below us. I mean, a few feet away, but it was almost straight down, right? So we're almost like looking down on this bird and it walked below us. It has this weird kind of waddling, walking gait. It bobs the head and has these big, long legs. At that point, we were totally satisfied. This had just been epic, right? We had this amazing sighting. I couldn't believe it. It started climbing the log. Like if it had kept going up that log, you know, it would have like walked over our legs. But it got even better. Like uh, the bird proceeded to sort of circle around us and then come back. And then it actually climbed down the log that was to our right. And it got to within about four feet of us. I mean, this was a range where, you know, you don't, you don't need binoculars it's too close to actually take a picture with your camera. It's just in your face. And it's kind of like poking its way down this this mossy log and getting closer and closer. And you're just holding your breath because you know that the tiniest bit of movement or the tiniest sound, this bird will be gone. And, and this thing just waddles its way right up to us. And uh, it was just thrilling. You know, it was just... just intoxicating like so you know eventually the bird waddled its way off into the forest and uh we crawled our way out of the thicket and that was pretty much the last bird of the day you know we called it a day we drove down but i think both of us who'd seen this bird we were just intoxicated like i just felt this glow of just sheer delight at having seen this bird it it was just an encounter that was you know unexpected and magical and you know i just felt like i had glimpsed something from another world like an ancient world it's hard to describe but I, I just went to sleep that night with this like full like full body glow of of delight and uh <laughs> you know this is kind of what it's all about right it's why we it's why we do this and, and it's funny because i've seen this bird quite a few times it's delightful, right? Every, every single time I love it, right? It's, but this sighting was just special. So it, it wasn't about that. I got really good photos. It wasn't about, uh, you know, it was just, a, it was something kind of intangibly amazing about this sighting, probably lifetime bird highlight for me. Well, I'm gripped. I'm jealous. I feel an urge to go out and look for it now. <laughs> Do people ever see it in Southern Thailand? You know what happened? There was a place called Krung Ching, which I think you might have been to. Yeah. Um, it's a site we go to. Uh, several years ago, there was a 
there was a park ranger and he figured out how to see this bird. He figured out where its territory was, how to get people views of it, and he would take people up there. There's a thing which happens in Thailand occasionally where a park ranger figures something out, starts making a bit of money on the side, and then you get this kind of jealousy of the other park rangers that are not making anything out of it. And then very suddenly, this person will be transferred somewhere else. So it was a very, very sad event. But I think that's what transpired is that uh, other park rangers, other people got, got annoyed that he was making some money and, and whatever. There's been a few places like that. So um, it was very sad. So by the time I started going there and looking for this thing, this guy was, you know, he was history. He was elsewhere. So uh, that was about the only place where it was regularly seen. Um, and I, I spent like a week, 10 days in this place looking for it. So it's not, I think there's easier places to see it. I think I'm going to have to go down to maybe Peninsula Malaysia, which I can get to pretty easily and cheaply and go and look for it there. Yeah, I've never missed it in Tamanagara, but I guess you've tried there as well. Yeah, but there's places like Panti, there's, there's, um, there was a, a site fairly close to KL, I think, um, where there was a, a blind where people were seeing it as well. So anyway, there's, uh, there's options. It, I'm not, I'm not panicked. I'm not thinking, oh, I'm never going to see this bird. I think it's just a matter of time. I'll, I'll see it in my own time and it'll be very special. To further grip you, I can mention the other sightings that occurred <laughs> during this tour. So this this wasn't the last yeah. time that we, we saw this bird during the, the trip. So there's no chance of it on the main Borneo tour. But on the immediately after the Borneo tour, I guided this peninsular Malaysia trip with mostly the same folks. And yeah, we went to Tamanagara National Park, National Park. Actually had an excellent rail babbler encounter there. So three of the people on that trip saw it really, really well, but then a couple folks missed it. But fortunately, these people had arranged, they, they are family listers, so they'd actually arranged a little custom ah. extension with me after the main tour ended right. to go down to that forest. You mentioned Panti Forest, which historically has been the, mm. the best place for this bird. And yeah, yeah we had an, another amazing encounter down there. And and these folks got great views, and it was just like the perfect capstone to the month in in Malaysia. So it kind of started and ended with rail babblers. Never get tired of that bird. It's just just magic. Nope. Well, thanks everybody for listening, tuning in, as they used to say. This is actually the last episode of season two, huh? um, episode number fifty of season two. So I guess this means this is our hundredth episode, Charlie. Should uh, yep. celebrate in some way. <laughs> it's impressive. So who, who'd have thunk it? Hard to believe we've done a hundred of these, and we still have things to say. At least we think we do. Um, <laughs> so we are going to take a week off, as we've done at the at the end of season one. We'll have a week off, so it will be two weeks until the next episode, which will be the first one of season three. We are tentatively planning to do some kind of live cast where, where people can participate. We thought about kicking off season three with this. We might not pull that off in time, partially because we're going to be on the road guiding in South Africa, but we're going to do that at some point. So maybe maybe uh, in September or something, we're going to do some kind of uh, 
going live seems to be the thing to do these days could be fun so we'll give you the details of that uh, for this week and for the very end of this season we'll wrap things up with a natural sound of the rail babbler it has this kind of piercing haunting whistle so this can be the soundtrack to uh, you can imagine you know peering into the understory listening to this kind of haunting whistle it's one of these vocalizations where it's hard to tell how far away the bird is right it can be like 10 feet or yep yep so again it adds to the mystique of this this wonderful bird the rail babbler so thanks folks for listening thanks for sticking with us through season two and we'll catch you in season three